Chapter Six, Part One, of the Lost Girl by D. H. Lawrence. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Houghton's last endeavour. The trouble with her ship was that it would not sail. It rode waterlogged in the rotting port of home. All very well to have wild, reckless moods of irony and independence if you have to pay for them by withering dustily on the shelf. Alvina fell again into humility and fear. She began to show symptoms of her mother's heart trouble. For day followed day, month followed month, season after season went by, and she grubbed away like a housemaid in Manchester House. She hurried round doing the shopping. She sang in the choir on Sundays. She attended the various chapel events. She went out to visit friends, and laughed and talked, and played games. But all the time, what was there actually in her life? Not much. She was withering towards old maiddom. Already in her twenty-eighth year, she spent her days grubbing in the house whilst her father became an elderly, frail man, still too lively in mind and spirit. Miss Pinnegar began to grow grey and elderly too. Money became scarcer and scarcer. There was a black day ahead when her father would die and the home be broken up, and she would have to tackle life as a worker. There lay the only alternative, in work. She might slave her days away teaching the piano, as Miss Frost had done. She might find a subordinate post as nurse. She might sit in the cash-desk of some shop. Some work of some sort would be found for her, and she would sink into the routine of her job, as did so many women, grow old and die, chattering and fluttering. She would have what is called her independence, but, seriously faced with that treasure, and without the option of refusing it, strange how hideous she found it. Work! A job! More even than she rebelled against the Whittams did she rebel against a job. Albert Whittam was distasteful to her, or rather, he was not exactly distasteful, he was chiefly incongruous. She could never get over the feeling that he was mouthing and smiling at her through the glass wall of an aquarium, he being on the watery side. Whether she would ever be able to take his strange and dishuman element, who knows? Anyway, it would be some sort of an adventure, better than a job. She rebelled with all her backbone against the word job. Even the substitutes, employment or work, were detestable, unbearable. Emphatically, she did not want to work for a wage. It was too humiliating. Could anything be more infradig than the performing of a set of special actions, day in, day out, for a lifetime, in order to receive some shillings every seventh day? Shameful! A condition of shame. The most vulgar, sordid and humiliating of all forms of slavery. So mechanical. Far better be a slave outright in contact with all the whims and impulses of a human being than serve some mechanical routine of modern work. She trembled with anger, impotence, and fear. For months the thought of Albert was a torment to her. She might have married him. He would have been strange, a strange fish. But were it not better to take the strange leap over into his element than to condemn oneself to the routine of a job? He would have been curious and dishuman, but after all it would have been an experience. In a way she liked him. There was something odd and integral about him which she liked. He was not a liar. In his own line he was honest and direct, 
Then he would take her to South Africa, a whole new milieu, and perhaps she would have children. She shivered a little. No, not his children. He seemed so curiously cold-blooded. And yet, why not? Why not his curious, pale, half-cold-blooded children, like little fishes of her own? Why not? Everything was possible, and even desirable, once one could see the strangeness of it. Once she could plunge through the wall of the aquarium. Once she could kiss him. Therefore Miss Pinnegar's quiet harping on the string was unbearable. "'I can't understand that you disliked Mr. Whittam so much,' said Miss Pinnegar. "'We can never understand those things,' said Alvina. "'I can't understand why I dislike tapioca and arrowroot, but I do.' "'That's different,' said Miss Pinnegar, shortly. "'It's no more easy to understand,' said Alvina. "'Because there's no need to understand it,' said Miss Pinnegar. "'And is there need to understand the other?' "'Certainly. I can see nothing wrong with him,' said Miss Pinnegar. Alvina went away in silence. This was in the first months after she had given Albert his dismissal. He was at Oxford again, would not return to Woodhouse till Christmas. Between her and the Woodhouse Whittams there was a decided coldness. They never looked at her now, nor she at them. Nonetheless, as Christmas drew near, Alvina worked up her feelings. Perhaps she would be reconciled to him. She would slip across and smile to him. She would take the plunge, once and for all, and kiss him, and marry him, and bear the little half-fishes his children. She worked herself into quite a fever of anticipation. But when she saw him, the first evening, sitting stiff and staring flatly in front of him in chapel, staring away from everything in the world at heaven knows what, just as fishes stare, then his dishumanness came over her again like an arrest, and rested all her flights of fancy. He stared flatly in front of him, and flatly set a wall of oblivion between him and her. She trembled and let be. After Christmas, however, she had nothing at all to think forward to, and it was then she seemed to shrink, she seemed positively to shrink. "'You never spoke to Mr. Whittam?' Miss Pennegar asked. "'He never spoke to me,' replied Alvina. "'He raised his hat to me.' "'You ought to have married him, Miss Pinnegar,' said Alvina. "'It would have been right for you.' And she laughed rather mockingly. "'There is no need to make provision for me,' said Miss Pinnegar. And after this she was a long time before she forgave Alvina, and was really friendly again. Perhaps she would never have forgiven her if she had not found her weeping rather bitterly in her mother's abandoned sitting-room. Now so far the story of Alvina is commonplace enough. It is more or less the story of thousands of girls. They all find work. It is the ordinary solution of everything. And if we were dealing with an ordinary girl, we should have to carry on mildly and dully down the long years of employment, or, at the best, marriage with some dull schoolteacher or office clerk. But we protest that Alvina is not ordinary. Ordinary people, ordinary fates. But extraordinary people, extraordinary fates or else no fate at all. The all-to-one pattern modern system is too much for most extraordinary individuals. It just kills them off, or throws them disused aside. There have been enough stories about ordinary people. I should think the Duke of Clarence must even have found Malmsey nauseating, when he choked and went purple, and was really asphyxiated in a butt of it. And ordinary people are no Malmsey, just ordinary tap-water. 
and we have been drenched and deluged and so nearly drowned in perpetual floods of ordinariness that tap-water tends to become a really hateful fluid to us we loathe its out-of-the-tap tastelessness we detest ordinary people we are in peril of our lives from them and in peril of our souls too for they would damn us one and all to the ordinary every individual should by nature have his extraordinary points but nowadays you may look for them with a microscope they are so worn down by the regular machine friction of our average and mechanical days there was no hope for alvina in the ordinary if help came it would have to come from the extraordinary hence the extreme peril of her case hence the bitter fear and humiliation she felt as she drudged shabbily on in manchester house hiding herself as much as possible from public view men can suck the heady juice of exalted self-importance from the bitter weed of failure failures are usually the most conceited of men even as was james houghton but to a woman failure is another matter for her it means failure to live failure to establish her own life on the face of the earth and this is humiliating the ultimate humiliation and so the slow years crept round and the completed coil of each one was a further heavy strangling noose alvina had passed her twenty-sixth twenty-seventh twenty-eighth and even her twenty-ninth year she was in her thirtieth it ought to be a laughing matter but it isn't ach schonsfanzig ach schonsfanzig immer noch durchs leben tanz ich jeder jeder will mich küssen mir das leben zu wetzussen ach schon dreißig ach schon dreißig immer mädchen mädchen heiß ich in dem sopf schon grauer herchen ach wie schnell vergehen die jährchen ach schon wirsig ach schon wirsig und noch immer keiner find sich im gesicht schon graue flecken ach das muß im spiegel stecken ach schon fünfzig ach schon fünfzig und noch immer keiner will mich soll ich mich mit bänden zieren soll ich einen schleier führen dann heißt's die alte putzt sich sie ist fünfzig sie ist fünfzig true enough in alvina's pigtail of soft brown the grey hairs were already showing true enough she still preferred to be thought of as a girl and the slow-footed years so heavy in passing were so imperceptibly numerous in their accumulation but we are not going to follow our song to its fatal and dreary conclusion presumably the ordinary old maid heroine nowadays is destined to die in her fifties she is not allowed to be the long liver of the bygone novels let the song suffice her james houghton had still another kick in him he had one last scheme up his sleeve looking out on a changing world it was the popular novelties which had the last fascination for him the skating rink like another charybdis had all but entangled him in its swirl as he pushed painfully off from the rocks of throttle halfpenny but he had escaped and for almost three years had lain obscurely in port like a frail and finished bark selling the last of his bits and bobs and making little splashes in warehouse oddments miss pinnegar thought he had really gone quiet but alas at that degenerated and shabby down-at-heel club he met another tempter 
a plump man who had been in the music-hall line as a sort of agent. This man had catered for the little shows of little towns. He had been in America, out west, doing shows there. He had trailed his way back to England, where he had left his wife and daughter. But he did not resume his family life. Wherever he was, his wife was a hundred miles away. Now he found himself more or less stranded in Woodhouse. He had nearly fixed himself up with a music-hall in the potteries, as manager. He had all but got such another place at Hickley, in Derbyshire. He had forced his way through the industrial and mining townlets, prospecting for any sort of music-hall or show from which he could get a picking. And now, in very low water, he found himself at Woodhouse. Woodhouse had a cinema already, a famous empire run-up by Jordan, the sly builder and decorator who had got on so surprisingly. In James's younger days, Jordan was an obscure and illiterate nobody. And now he had a motor-car, and looked at the tottering James with sardonic contempt from under his heavy, heavy-lidded dark eyes. He was rather stout, frail in health, but silent and insuperable, was A. W. Jordan. "'I missed a chance there,' said James, fluttering. "'I missed a rare chance there. I ought to have been first with a cinema.' He admitted as much to Mr. May, the stranger who was looking for some sort of managing job. Mr. May, who also was plump, and who could hold his tongue, but whose pink, fat face and light blue eyes had a loud look for all that, put the speech in his pipe and smoked it. Not that he smoked a pipe, always cigarettes, but he seized on James's admission as something to be made the most of. Now Mr. May's mind, though quick, was pedestrian, not winged. He had come to Woodhouse not to look at Jordan's empire, but at the temporary wooden structure that stood in the old cattle market, Wright's Cinematograph and Variety Theatre. Wright's was not a superior show like the Woodhouse Empire, yet it was always packed with colliers and work-lasses. But unfortunately there was no chance of Mr. May's getting a finger in the cattle market pie. Wright's was a family affair, Mr. and Mrs. Wright, and a son and two daughters with their husbands, a tight old lock-up family concern yet it was the kind of show that appealed to Mr. May, pictures between the turns. The cinematograph was but an item in the programme, amidst the more thrilling incidents, to Mr. May, of conjurers, popular songs, five-minute farces, performing birds, and comics. Mr. May was too human to believe that a show should consist entirely of the dithering eye-ache of a film. He was becoming really depressed by his failure to find any opening. He had his family to keep, and though his honesty was of the variety sort, he had a heavy conscience in the direction of his wife and daughter. Having been so long in America, he had acquired American qualities, one of which was this heavy sort of private innocence, coupled with complacent and natural unscrupulousness in matters of business. A man of some odd sensitiveness in material things, he liked to have his clothes neat and spick, his linen immaculate his face clean-shaved like a cherub, but alas his clothes were now old-fashioned, so that their rather expensive smartness was detrimental to his chances, in spite of their scrupulous look of having come almost new out of the bandbox that morning. His rather small felt hats still curved jauntily over his full pink face, but his eyes looked lugubrious, as if he felt he had not deserved so much bad luck, and there were bilious lines beneath them. 
so mr may in his room in the moon and stars which was the best inn in woodhouse he must have a good hotel lugubriously considered his position woodhouse offered little or nothing he must go to alfreton and would he find anything there ah where where in this hateful world was there refuge for a man saddled with responsibilities who wanted to do his best and was given no opportunity mr may had travelled in his pullman car and gone straight to the best hotel in the town like any other american with money in america he had done it smart too and now in this grubby penny-picking england he saw his boots being worn down at the heel and was afraid of being stranded without cash even for a railway ticket if he had to clear out without paying his hotel bill well that was the world's fault he had to live but he must perforce keep enough in hand for a ticket to birmingham he always said his wife was in london and he always walked down to lumley to post his letters he was full of evasions so again he walked down to Lumley to post his letters, and he looked at Lumley, and he found it a damn God-forsaken hell of a hole. It was a long straggle of a dusty road down in the valley, with a pale grey dust and spatter from the pottery, and big chimneys bellying forth black smoke right by the road. Then there was a short crossway, up which he saw the iron foundry, a black and rusty place. A little further on was the railway junction, and beyond that, more houses stretching to Hathersedge, where the stocking factories were busy. Compared with Lumley, Woodhouse, whose church could be seen sticking up proudly and vulgarly on an eminence above trees and meadow slopes, was an idyllic heaven. Mr. May turned in to the Derby Hotel to have a small whisky, and of course he entered into conversation. "'You seem somewhat quiet at Lumley,' he said, in his odd, refined showman's voice. "'Have you nothing at all in the way of amusement?' They all go up to Woodhouse, else to Hathersedge. But couldn't you support some place of your own, some rival to Wright's variety? Aye, happen, if somebody started it. And so it was that James was inoculated with the idea of starting a cinema on the virgin soil of Lumley. To the women he said not a word. But on the very first morning that Mr. May broached the subject, he became a new man. He fluttered like a boy. He fluttered as if he had just grown wings. "'Let us go down,' said Mr. May, "'and look at a sight. "'You pledge yourself to nothing. "'You don't compromise yourself. "'You merely have a sight in your mind.' "'And so it came to pass that next morning "'this oddly assorted couple went down to Lumley together. "'James was very shabby, "'in his black coat and dark grey trousers "'and his cheap grey cap. "'He bent forward as he walked, "'and still nipped along hurriedly "'as if pursued by fate. "'His face was thin and still handsome.' Odd that his cheap cap by incongruity made him look more a gentleman, but it did. As he walked he glanced alertly hither and thither, and saluted everybody. By his side, somewhat tight and tubby, with his chest out and his head back, went the prim figure of Mr. May, reminding one of a consequential bird of the smaller species. His plumbago grey suit fitted exactly, save that it was perhaps a little tight. The jacket and waistcoat were bound with silk braid of exactly the same shade as the cloth. His soft collar, immaculately fresh, had a dark stripe, like his shirt. His boots were black, with grey suede uppers, but a little down at heel. His dark grey hat was jaunty. Altogether he looked very spruce, though a little behind the fashions. Very pink-faced, 
though his blue eyes were bilious beneath, very much on the spot, although the spot was the wrong one. They discoursed amiably as they went, James bending forward, Mr. May bending back. Mr. May took the refined, man-of-the-world tone. "'Of course,' he said. He used the two words very often, and pronounced the second rather mincingly to rhyme with sauce. "'Of course,' said Mr. May. "'It's a disgusting place. Disgusting. I never was in a worse in all the course of my travels. But then that isn't the point.' He spread his plump hands from his immaculate shirt-cuffs. "'No, it isn't. Decidedly it isn't. That's beside the point altogether. What we want,' began James, "'is an audience. Of course. And we have it. Virgin soil. Yes, decidedly. Untouched. An unspoiled market.' "'An unspoiled market,' reiterated Mr. May, in full confirmation, though with a faint flicker of a smile. "'How very fortunate for us!' "'Properly handled?' said James. "'Properly handled?' "'Why, yes, of course. Why shouldn't we handle it properly?' "'Oh, we shall manage that. We shall manage that,' came the quick, slightly husky voice of James. "'Of course we shall. Why, bless my life, if we can't manage an audience in Lumley, what can we do?' "'We have a guide in the matter of their taste,' said James. "'We can see what rights are doing, and Jordan's.' and we can go to Hathersedge and Narborough and Alfreton, beforehand, that is. Why, certainly, if you think it's necessary, I'll do all that for you. And I'll interview the managers and the performers themselves, as if I were a journalist, don't you see? I've done a fair amount of journalism, and nothing easier than to get cards from various newspapers. Yes, that's a good suggestion, said James, as if you were going to write an account in the newspapers. Excellent. And so simple. You pick up just all the information you require. Decidedly, decidedly, said James. And so behold our two heroes, sniffing round the sordid backs and wasted meadows and marshy places of Lumley. They found one barren patch where two caravans were standing. A woman was peeling potatoes, sitting on the bottom step of her caravan. A half-caste girl came up with a large pale blue enamelled jug of water. In the background were two booths, covered up with coloured canvas. Hammering was heard inside. "'Good morning,' said Mr. May, stopping before the woman. "'Tisn't fair time, is it?' "'No, it's no fair,' said the woman. "'I see. You're just on your own. Getting on all right?' "'Fair,' said the woman. "'Only fair. Sorry. Good morning.' Mr. May's quick eye, roving round, had seen a negro stoop from under the canvas that covered one booth. The negro was thin, and looked young, but rather frail, and limped. His face was very like that of the young negro in Watteau's drawing, pathetic, wistful, north-bitten. In an instant Mr. May had taken all in. The man was the woman's husband. They were acclimatised in these regions. The booth where he had been hammering was a hoopla. The other would be a coconut-shy. Feeling the instant American dislike for the presence of a negro, Mr. May moved off with James. They found out that the woman was a lumly woman, that she had two children, that the negro was a most quiet and respectable chap, but that the family kept to itself, and didn't mix up with Lumley. "'I should think so,' said Mr. May, a little disgusted even at the suggestion. Then he proceeded to find out how long they had stood on this ground, three months, how long they would remain, only another week, then they were moving off to Alfreton Fair, 
Who was the owner of the pitch? Mr. Bowes, the butcher. Ah! And what was the ground used for? Oh, it was building land, but the foundation wasn't very good. The very thing! Aren't we fortunate? cried Mr. May, perking up the moment they were in the street. But this cheerfulness and brisk perkiness was a great strain on him. He missed his eleven o'clock whisky terribly, terribly, his pick-me-up, and he daren't confess it to James, who, he knew, was T.T. So he dragged his weary and hollow way up to Woodhouse, and sank with a long, oh, of nervous exhaustion in the private bar of the moon and stars. He wrinkled his short nose. The smell of the place was distasteful to him. The disgusting beer that the colliers drank. Oh, he was so tired. He sank back with his whisky and stared blankly, dismally in front of him. Beneath his eyes he looked more bilious still. He felt thoroughly out of luck, and petulant. Nonetheless he sallied out with all his old bright perkiness the next time he had to meet James. He hadn't yet broached the question of costs. When would he be able to get an advance from James? He must hurry the matter forward. He brushed his crisp, curly brown hair carefully before the mirror. How grey he was at the temples! No wonder, dear me, with such a life! He was in his shirt-sleeves. His waistcoat, with its grey satin back, fitted him tightly. He had filled out, but he hadn't developed a corporation. Not at all. He looked at himself sideways, and feared dismally he was thinner. He was one of those men who carry themselves in a birdie fashion, so that their tail sticks out a little behind, jauntily. How wonderfully the satin of his waistcoat had worn! He looked at his shirt-cuffs. They were going. Luckily, when he had had the shirts made, he had secured enough material for the renewing of cuffs and neckbands. He put on his coat, from which he had flicked the faintest suspicion of dust, and again settled himself to go out and meet James on the question of an advance. He simply must have an advance. He didn't get it that day, none the less. The next morning he was ringing for his tea at six o'clock, and before ten he had already flitted to Lumley and back. He had already had a word with Mr. Bowes about that pitch, and, overcoming all his repugnance, a word with the quiet, frail, sad negro about Alfreton Fair, and the chance of buying some sort of collapsible building for his cinematograph. With all this news he met James, not at the shabby club, but in the deserted reading-room of the so-called Artisan's Hall, where never an artisan entered, but only men of James's class. Here they took the chessboard and pretended to start again, but their conversation was rapid and secretive. Mr. May disclosed all his discoveries, and then he said, tentatively, "'Hadn't we better think about the financial part now? If we're going to look around for an erection—' "'Curious that he always called it an erection. "'We shall have to know what we are going to spend.' "'Yes, yes. "'Well,' said James vaguely, "'nervously giving a glance at Mr. May, "'whilst Mr. May abstractedly fingered his black knight. "'You see, at the moment,' said Mr. May, "'I have no funds that I can represent in cash. "'I have no doubt a little later, if we need it, "'I can find a few hundreds. "'Many things are due.' numbers of things. But it is so difficult to collect one's dues, particularly from America. He lifted his blue eyes to James Houghton. Of course we can delay for some time until I get my supplies, or I can act just as your manager. You can employ me. 
He watched James's face. James looked down at the chessboard. He was fluttering with excitement. He did not want a partner. He wanted to be in this all by himself. He hated partners. "'You will agree to be a manager at a fixed salary?' said James, hurriedly and huskily, his fine fingers slowly rubbing each other along the sides. "'Why, yes, willingly, if you'll give me the option of becoming your partner upon terms of mutual agreement later on.' James did not quite like this. "'What terms are you thinking of?' he asked. "'Well, it doesn't matter for the moment. Suppose for the moment I enter an engagement as your manager at a salary. Let us say of—of what, do you think?' "'So much a week,' said James pointedly. "'And we'd better make it monthly.' The two men looked at one another. "'With a month's notice, on either hand?' continued Mr. May. "'How much?' said James, avaricious. Mr. May studied his own nicely-kept hands. "'Well, I don't see how I can do it under twenty pounds a month. Of course, it's ridiculously low. In America I never accepted less than three hundred dollars a month.' and that was my poorest and lowest. But of course England's not America. More's the pity. But James was shaking his head in a vibrating movement. Impossible, he replied shrewdly. Impossible. Twenty pounds a month. Impossible. I couldn't do it. I couldn't think of it. Then name a figure. Say what you can think of, retorted Mr. May, rather annoyed by this shrewd, shaking head of a doddering provincial and by his own sudden collapse into mean subordination. "'I can't make it more than ten pounds a month,' said James sharply. "'What?' screamed Mr. May. "'What am I to live on? What is my wife to live on?' "'I've got to make it pay,' said James. "'If I've got to make it pay, I must keep down expenses at the beginning.' "'No, on the contrary. You must be prepared to spend something at the beginning.' If you go in pinch-and-scrape fashion in the beginning, you will get nowhere at all. Ten pounds a month! Why, it's impossible! Ten pounds a month! But how am I to live? James's head still vibrated in a negative fashion, and the two men came to no agreement that morning. Mr. May went home more sick and weary than ever, and took his whisky more biliously. But James was lit with the light of battle. Poor Mr. May had to gather together his wits and his sprightliness for his next meeting. He had decided he must make a percentage in other ways. He schemed in all known ways. He would accept the ten pounds. But really, did you ever hear of anything so ridiculous in your life? Ten pounds! Dirty old screw! Dirty, screwing old woman! He would accept the ten pounds, but he would get his own back. He flitted down once more to the negro to ask him of a certain wooden show-house, with section sides and roof, an old travelling theatre which stood closed on Selverhay Common, and might probably be sold. He pressed across once more to Mr. Bowes. He wrote various letters and drew up certain notes, and the next morning, by eight o'clock, he was on his way to Selverhay, walking, poor man, the long and uninteresting seven miles on his small and rather tight-shod feet, through country that had been once beautiful, but was now scrubbed all over with mining villages, on and on up heavy hills, and down others, asking his way from uncouth clowns, till at last he came to the common, which wasn't a common at all, but a sort of village, more depressing than usual, naked, high, exposed to heaven and to full barren view. 
There he saw the theatre-booth. It was old and sordid-looking, painted dark red and dishevelled, with narrow, tattered announcements. The grass was growing high up the wooden sides. If only it wasn't rotten! He crouched and probed and pierced with his penknife, till a country policeman in a high helmet like a jug saw him, got off his bicycle, and came stealthily across the grass, wheeling the same bicycle, and startled poor Mr. May almost into apoplexy by demanding behind him, in a loud voice, "'What are you after?' Mr. May rose up with flushed face and swollen neck-veins, holding his penknife in his hand. "'Oh!' he said. "'Good morning!' He settled his waistcoat and glanced over the tall, lanky constable and the glittering bicycle. "'I was taking a look at this old erection, with a view to buying it. I'm afraid it's going rotten from the bottom.' "'Shouldn't wonder,' said the policeman, suspiciously, watching Mr. May shut the pocket-knife. "'I'm afraid that makes it useless, for my purpose,' said Mr. May. The policeman did not deign to answer. "'Could you tell me where I can find out about it, anyway?' Mr. May used his most affable, man-of-the-world manner. But the policeman continued to stare him up and down, as if he were some marvellous specimen, unknown on the normal, honest earth. "'What? Find out?' said the constable. "'About being able to buy it?' said Mr. May, a little testily. It was with great difficulty he preserved his man-to-man -man openness and brightness. "'They aren't here,' said the constable. "'Oh, indeed! Where are they? And who are they?' The policeman eyed him more suspiciously than ever. "'Cowlard's the name, and they live in Offerton when they aren't travelling. "'Cowlard, thank you,' Mr. May took out his pocket-book. "'C-O-W-L-A-R-D, is that right? And the address, please.' "'Really? And how do you get there?' "'You can walk, or go by train.' "'Oh, there is a station.' "'Station?' The policeman looked at him, as if he were either a criminal or a fool. "'Yes, there is a station there.' "'Aye, biggest next to Chesterfield.' Suddenly it dawned on Mr. May. "'Oh,' he said, "'you mean Alfreton.' "'Alfreton, yes.' The policeman was now convinced the man was a wrong un, But fortunately he was not a pushing constable. He did not want to rise in the police scale, thought himself safest at the bottom. "'And which is the way to the station here?' asked Mr. May. "'Do you want Pinkson or Bullill?' Pinkson or Bull Ill? There's two, said the policeman. For Selverhay? asked Mr. May. Yes, them's the two. And which is the best? Depends what trains is running. Sometimes you have to wait an hour or two. You don't know the trains. Do you? There's one each afternoon, but I don't know if it'll be gone by the time you get down. To where? Bull Ill? Oh, Bull Ill. Uh, well, perhaps I'll try. Could you tell me the way? When, after an hour's painful walk, Mr. May came to Bulwell Station, and found there was no train till six in the evening, he felt he was earning every penny he would ever get from Mr. Houghton. The first intelligence which Miss Pinnegar and Alvina gathered of the coming adventure was given them when James announced that he had let the shop to Marsden, the grocer next door. Marsden had agreed to take over James's premises at the same rent as that of the premises he already occupied and moreover to do all alterations and put in all fixtures himself. This was a grand scoop for James, not a penny was it going to cost him, and the rent was clear profit. "'But when?' cried Miss Pinnegar. "'He takes possession on the first of October.' "'Well, it's a good idea. 
"'The shop isn't worth while,' said Miss Pinnegar. "'Certainly it isn't,' said James, rubbing his hands, a sign that he was rarely excited and pleased. "'And you'll just retire and live quietly,' said Miss Pinnegar. "'I shall see,' said James, and with those fatal words he wafted away to find Mr. May. James was now nearly seventy years old, yet he nipped about like a leaf in the wind, only it was a frail leaf. "'Father's got something going,' said Alvina, in a warning voice. "'I believe he has,' said Miss Pinnegar, pensively. "'I wonder what it is now.' "'I can't imagine,' laughed Alvina. "'But I'll bet it's something awful, else he'd have told us.' "'Yes,' said Miss Pinnegar, slowly. "'Most likely he would. "'I wonder what it can be.' "'I haven't an idea,' said Alvina. "'Both women were so retired, "'they had heard nothing of James's little trips down to Lumley, "'so they watched like cats for their man's return at dinner-time. "'Miss Pinnegar saw him coming along, "'talking excitedly to Mr. May, "'who, all in grey, with his chest perkily stuck out like a robin, "'was looking rather pinker than usual.' Having come to an agreement, he had ventured on whisky and soda in honour, and James had actually taken a glass of port. "'Alvina!' Miss Pinnegar called discreetly down the shop. "'Alvina! Quick!' Alvina flew down to peep round the corner of the shop window. There stood the two men, Mr. May like a perky, pink-faced grey bird, standing cocking his head in attention to James Houghton, and occasionally catching James by the lapel of his coat in a vain desire to get a word in, whilst James' head nodded and his face simply wagged with excited speech as he skipped from foot to foot and shifted round his listener. "'Whoever can that common-looking man be?' said Miss Pinnegar, her heart going down to her boots. "'I can't imagine,' said Alvina, laughing at the comic sight. "'Don't you think he's dreadful?' said the poor elderly woman. "'Perfectly impossible!' "'Did you ever see such a pink face?' "'And the braid-binding,' said Miss Pinnegar, in indignation. "'Father might almost have sold him the suit,' said Alvina. "'Let us hope he hasn't sold your father, that's all,' said Miss Pinnegar. The two men had moved a few steps further towards home, and the women prepared to flee indoors. Of course it was frightfully wrong to be standing peeping in the high street at all, but who could consider the proprieties now?' "'They've stopped again,' said Miss Pinnegar, recalling Alvina. The two men were having a few more excited words, their voices just audible. "'I do wonder who he can be,' murmured Miss Pinnegar, miserably. "'In the theatrical line, I'm sure,' declared Alvina. "'Do you think so?' said Miss Pinnegar. "'Can't be. Can't be. It couldn't be anything else, don't you think? Oh, I can't believe it. I can't.' But now Mr. May had laid his detaining hand on James's arm, and now he was shaking his employer by the hand, and now James, in his cheap little cap, was smiling a formal farewell. And Mr. May, with a graceful wave of his grey suede gloved hand, was turning back to the moon and stars, strutting, whilst James was running home on tiptoe, in his natural hurry. Alvina hastily retreated, but Miss Pinnegar stood it out. James started as he nipped into the shop entrance, and found her confronting him. "'Oh, Miss Pinnegar,' he said, and made to slip by her. "'Who was that man?' she asked sharply, as if James were a child whom she could endure no more. "'Eh? I beg your pardon?' said James, starting back. 
"'Who was that man?' "'Eh, which man?' James was a little deaf, and a little husky. "'The man,' Miss Pinnegar turned to the door. "'There, that man!' End of chapter 6, part 1 Read by Tony Foster